Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The unmistakable voice of Adolf Hitler addressing a large gathering of followers. Hitler was one of the few 20th century politicians to understand the power of imagery, drama and rhetoric. He used everything as a medium for propaganda, publications and posters, symbols and films, even uniforms and architecture. Nicholas O'Shaughnessy is the Professor of Communication at Queen Mary University of London and he uses marketing scholarship to show how propaganda and political marketing existed not merely as an instrument of government in Nazi Germany but as the very medium of government itself. I'm Rob Weinberg and in this edition of Historical Fiction I've been speaking to Nicholas O'Shaughnessy about the fiction that Hitler created about himself and its resonance for the post-truth fake news world of today. This is historical fiction. Nicholas O'Shaughnessy, Hitler seems to be one of those politicians who understood that persuasion was everything. The entire regime was infused with imagery, rhetoric. How did he develop that ability to project himself in the way that he wanted to project himself? Exactly. Well, firstly, one should say about him that he was a stage designer wannabe. He'd actually twice been due to have an interview with the professor of theatre and opera design in Vienna, and had on both occasions failed to turn up to the interview. This is before the First World War, because he was overwrought and frightened, funnily enough. Uh, he was uh, someone who aestheticized politics and was obsessed with the aestheticization of politics. For him, Germany was a stage. But it was really the instrumentality we should focus on and how he came to this view. In other words, it's actually more than using propaganda as an instrument, as other regimes have often done, of course, but actually using it as the very medium of government, the very breadth of government. The interesting question is, why? And it comes back to the whole story of the stab in the back and the end of the First World War. As an ethno-nationalist, Hitler, like many Germans, could not believe that the German army had been defeated by licit means, by the British. The British of all people, the Kaiser in 1914 had referred to that contemptible little army, and that's how they perceived. How could the great German army be defeated by them? And so they had to find an explanation. One is the stab in the back. The other is really the necromancy of propaganda, that films like The Kaiser, Beast of Berlin, the propaganda in No Man's Land, the dropping of London restaurant menus onto a starving Berlin and so forth, they actually came to believe that their morale had been destroyed by British propaganda, that the British were masters of this, and that therefore mastery of propaganda was key to victory in war, 
but also in peace as well, that communication was everything. Persuasion was the core dynamo of a nation and of an army. How much did Hitler draw upon German mythology, Wagnerian stories, German folklore? Mm. He seems to have been quite immersed in that to begin with. Yes, it was an immersion, but it was also a reinvention. You should also add, of course, German history, particularly Frederick the Great. It was a question of really repackaging these myths, legends, and stories. King Frederick Barbarossa and so forth for, of course, the name, Operation Barbarossa, of the invasion of Russia. It was actually not a case of any kind of truthful relationship to German myth, German tradition, German history, but actually reinventing these for political purposes. The reinvention had little in common with the actual history, the actual Frederick the Great, of course, who said that German was the language with which he spoke to his horses. So <laughs> this is really the point, that it was an imagined past and imagined mythology which they mobilized. And presumably the accounts of Frederick the Great or even Charlemagne or the Roman Empire mm. were also stories, myths, histories that mm. inspired his vision of the Reich. They certainly did, but we must remember that he really didn't go back to German ancient history, which he despised. He thought Himmler ridiculous for collecting what he called pot shards and bits of mud huts. He, he took the true patrimony as being Rome and being particularly Greece. The Greeks were the proto-Aryans, and you see this at the beginning, of course, of Triumph of the Will. The Greek paternity is established by the famous image of Mar and the discus thrower, and the Greek statue, which kind of comes alive in an athlete who then carries the flaming torch to Germany. So we think of Goebbels as the prime mover in the propaganda regime of the Third Reich, but you argue that Hitler was the author of that imagery. Absolutely. Goebbels was very important as propaganda supremo in the first few months of the regime, and then in the last year. But only then was he the Goebbels of public imagination. For the rest of it, he simply controlled the uh, film industry and radio, but he didn't control the press. Hitler's administrative structure always set up these satraps against each other, so you had a competition to interpret his will. Uh, the real propaganda supremo was Hitler. I mean, it's he who basically edited, or was grand editor of the newsreels. It was he who supervised the day's press bulletins, all of these things, even intervening in the making of a film like the great king on Frederick the Great, like Kohlberg and so forth, Hitler was intimately involved in their production, even at one stage settling a fight between his generals and Goebbels over the presentation of German generals in one of the films. What was the difference between the real Adolf Hitler and the image that he then cultivated? Well, that is an incredibly important point, and the truth is that they began to merge. He never saw himself, you see, as the Messiah. It was only during the court trial of the Birhol Putsch that the idea uh, seems to have occurred to him that he actually was the Messiah. 
he was speaking about. But in the early stages, it was a ill-judged uh, process of actually finding the right symbols and language and style. Uh, for example, early on he wears lederhosen. <laughs> well, that really didn't work, and so on and so forth. In other words, he was stumbling at first. But he grew into the role, and the more he grew into it and was affirmed in the role, the more it actually became him. The more actually he believed that he was chosen by destiny. This was reinforced by the failures of the assassination attempts, which were 25 in total. He actually began to believe that he was indeed in some sense superhuman. But who was the real Adolf Hitler before all of that began? Well, the real Adolf Hitler was a complete neurotic who suffered, and I think this is the key point about him, that he'd suffered loss of social status. You see, Adolf Hitler was petty bourgeois, but he found himself on the streets of Vienna, living in immense hostel, doing working-class jobs, eking out a living, uh, painting postcards and so forth. And it was this acute lack of status uh, which really had uh, traumatic effects on him. The interesting thing is that that replicated the later post-World War I lack of status for Germany and for lots of people in Germany who were comfortably in the middle class, low middle class, and suddenly found it was all gone. So he was able to communicate them in a profound way because their narrative was his earlier narrative. He actually could get, in some sense, inside their minds. As a trained artist, then, his sense of visual media must have been quite well developed. Yes, he had a very strong visual sense. Remember that his paintings sold. They are really in the Austrian romantic urban landscape school. They're of buildings, not people. They're presentable. They're not great, but they're presentable. The point is that he had a certain level of competence. He was merely a competent artist. But that means he could visualize things. He could create a stage set. He could create a scene. He was intensely sensitive to the visual aspects of communication and especially to the symbolic aspects. So are you saying then that everything that the Reich projected about themselves and about Hitler was propaganda? Everything indeed. Uh, this is a book which is simply the litter picked up on a single day of the Battle of Monte Cassino by a British army officer and was turned by his son into a picture book. It's an extraordinary thing because it shows what the Germans were doing was utilising psychological artillery. They were actually firing mortars full of literature at all of the four armies, British, Indian, Polish and American, which were besieging Monte Cassino. And you can see that it's extraordinarily good, actually. This is what looks like a rather good travel poster with a sketch of a woman in a bikini and an Italian beach with a farmhouse and palm trees and blue seas and surf. And on the other side are a whole row of crosses etched in dark brown with British helmets on them. So the first page says, Italy wants to see you, but did you expect to find this? A looming skeleton uh, presiding over all of it, which is, of course, the image of 
of death himself. And so to think of this as actually a battlefield production from one single day is an extraordinary thing. No other regime has ever thought like this. The zeitgeist of the regime was actually propaganda. The entire world was treated as a site of propaganda. Even, for example, the entry into North Africa was serenaded by the production of millions of leaflets, radio programs, airdrops, which described Adolf Hitler as the avenging sword of the Prophet Mohammed. So it seems like everything from typography to architecture to weapons was deployed. Yeah, it's extraordinary. For example, the massive gun which demanded 200 troops to kind of feed and manage it, which bombarded Sevastopol, the railway gun, was turned into a poster in France showing the gun, which is huge, and uh, is simply headed La Puissance à la Mine. And it's a picture of the gun and the slogan. And this was the way they weaponized all propaganda. They turned it into a battlefield weapon, a weapon of social control. Menus had slogans on them, public squares had loudspeakers in them, and so forth. In other words, it was really a tsunami of ideas, slogans, information, to which the individual had no, ultimately no defenses. It was an invasion of the human mind. Was Hitler an innovator, or was he just expert at packaging and making use of what was already there? Hitler was uh, an expert packager. I mean, a lot of the persuasion, genius and so forth, architectural and, and other things, were not originated by him. He was very good, though, at collating and directing and bringing together the ideas of others and packaging them. A very good example is, of course, the swastika. I mean, this was, of course, derived from Buddhism. You see them all over Asia. But the particular stylization, the colors and so forth, were Hitler's. He spent hours, apparently, in Munich Public Library looking for symbols, heraldic designs and so forth, uh, from which to draw the imagistic stock bank of the regime. A lot of it was his personal authorship. Uh, things like military uniforms were hugely important. If you take Axel von Busch, who was going to murder Hitler, he was going to actually appear in a military fashion parade, modeling new uniforms for the Führer. And he was going to have a couple of grenades in his pocket, and he was going to self-detonate as he sort of twirled in front of Hitler. Now, it didn't happen because the um, railway um, carriage which had the clothes in it was strafed by the Allies the night before. Um, von Busch was sent to the Eastern Front where he lost a leg. The point is, though, that you cannot imagine a Roosevelt or even a Stalin, or certainly not Churchill, going to a military fashion parade. I mean, he wouldn't have seen that as instrumental. It wouldn't have been part of his worldview to see the clothed soldiers' war as actually an important part of the war effort, which actually, objectively, they are that they give people pride, uh, status, all, all of those things. But Hitler saw that, you see, and so a lot of what he was doing there at the Berghof was micromanaging the propaganda detail. I mean, uh, Goebbels has uh, an extraordinary story of him taking a, a speech of Goebbels due to be given to German PR workers in, I think it was Prague, 
and Hitler goes through it line by line and cuts it in half. Now, that is micromanagement. It's an extraordinary thing that he should do that. Goebbels also describes Hitler talking about personalities within the British Ministry of Information and laughing about them, making jokes about them. But why? Why was that so important? In other words, this was a fetish. There was an absolute obsession. It was what he was actually doing a lot of the time. People forget that. Did the people who were closest to Hitler buy into that myth, or did they see the real man? This is, of course, a very good point. They bought into the idea that propaganda was everything. The reality of them via V. Hitler is for much of the time they were competing for his attention and favor, and therefore they had to make themselves desirable to him. Whether they separated him out from the myth is an interesting point. Uh, clearly some didn't. Of course, Goebbels died in the bunker with him and killed all his kids. Others uh, were more skeptical. I mean, there were some generals who, who rather resisted the Hitler myth, who just saw him as this annoying jumped-up corporal. But many, many of the senior people were influenced by the propaganda. It's really a, a question of Max Weber's definition of charisma to work. The charismatic must uh, keep on delivering. The point is that he did keep on delivering throughout the 30s, throughout the first part of the war. Uh, these victories were so astonishing, both diplomatically and military, that in the end myth and man were fused, and the propaganda seemed to be the articulator of the truth. In your book Selling Hitler, mm. you've used marketing scholarship, mm. which is your field, mm to apply it to Nazi Germany. How did you go about that? Well, uh, I realized that um, historians like Norman Stone, who's a friend of mine, but doesn't actually even mention propaganda, as far as I can recall, in his biography of Hitler, they were just putting it so far to the side. And yet it was clear to me, the more I looked into it, that it should be studied not because I was an expert on history or a special, had a special interest in Nazi Germany per se, as the fact that it was unique in all history for actually having its core dynamo as being this fetish for propaganda, uh, that it was just so unique that anyone interested in persuasion really had to go to it as the first case study in the power of persuasion. And this was something historians were not doing, because, of course, you look at phenomena through the concepts you possessed and through your training. Uh, historians are not trained in the social sciences or psychology or in marketing or, or all of these things. So they, they don't actually see these things, even though they're staring at them in the face. They tend to feel that they don't have the tools uh, really to treat them. And they tend to feel, of course, well, how can you prove this was influential. It was a dogma of the regime. It was an ideology. They can accept that. But they may well be quite skeptical as to whether it had any effect at all, or whether it was just a kind of uh, enacted figment of Hitler's imagination. You've used a term which is the engineering of consent. Yes, yes. What do you mean by that? Well, that was Chomsky's term, and before that it was Edward Bernays, the father of public relations. It's the idea that consent is a commodity which can be produced. 
that most people for most of the time are too invested in their private lives are really to have the energy to focus on this question of what is the truth about a situation, what do I really believe? And therefore, there's a lot of persuasion territory up for grabs if you do it well. If you do it in ways which are vivid, which resonate, which trespass onto consciousness. And so, indeed, with the right kind of slogans and campaigns, you really can engineer consent. And there are many more recent, of course, examples of that. So you're talking about politics as being something that's consumerized. The con- consumerization of politics, absolutely. When you get away from a world of inherited class loyalties, which was still strong in Germany in the 30s, but was beginning to break down, then there's a lot of political territory up for grabs. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today we live in a post-truth era, so-called, and there's a lot of talk about fake news. Mm. What are the parallels between Hitler's use of politics and the current situation? I think the danger is that we uh, cite such and such a politician as being like Hitler. They're not like Hitler. The parallel and the common ground is that he was a pioneer in the proselytization techniques of a media age. And even though the technology was not our technology, it was still pretty remarkable. For example, the eight giant transmitters at Ziesen could hit all over the world. And so you had things like Radio Waziristan for the northwest frontier of India. You had Radio Caledonia for Scotland. You had Radio Cymru for Wales. You had the Christian People Station, the Workers' Channel Station, as well as Lord Hawhall's of course, famous broadcasts, uh, which was the formal channel, but these were the clandestine ones. This use, of course, of disinformation was very, very important of fake news. The Nazis are bigoted, but what they understood, and I think this is key to the concept of fake news, is it can't be all a lie. It must have a a grain of truth. If you take the whole um, story of Kaufman, who's an American newspaper editor, And he wrote a book in small town, New Jersey, a book called Germany Must Perish. No publisher would touch it. It advocated the sterilization of all Germans, Kaufmann's Jewish, and so he privately printed 100 copies. But the Nazis turned this into a huge event. They turned him into an advisor to Roosevelt, to Stalin, and they reprinted the book in Germany. Now, (coughs) you may think who could possibly have given any credence to it. But remember, there's the Morgenthau plan. Morgenthau was in Roosevelt's cabinet, was to reduce Germany to a purely agricultural country post-war, to take away all its industry. And of course, it was ignored. 
but the fact it has existed, so this was, at a certain level, uh, plausible. And there is another sense, too, in which a lie is merely a deeper form of truth. If you take the sinking of the Ark Royal, for example, Goebbels announced that it had been sunk a number of times, and it hadn't, but it kind of didn't matter because they were going to sink it. And there's probably nothing we could have done short of sending it to a harbour in America to actually save it because they'd made it their number one nautical priority to sink the Ark Royal. And so that's how it worked. There is a strange relationship between truth and falsehood, which they well understood. So what is it about human psychology that en masse we can buy into something which is so clearly deficient in so many ways? We can and we do, and that's because in many contexts we have a powerful wish to believe. So what the deceiver, the seducer, and, and the, I think, right word is seduction, not coercion, it's seduction, is an invitation to share in a fantasy, a, a kind of, if you like, a hallucination of solidarity, which is very, very powerful. In other words, we become partners in our own self-deceit. This is not, in other words, the old hypodermic model of communication stimulus response. It's something very different. It's turning it into a kind of federation of conspirators uh, led by the chief conspirator, Goebbels, but everyone else joining in. So what would the parallels be today, do you think? Obviously, uh, Donald Trump offers so many parallels, it's difficult to know. But a, a very good example is a speech where he said that there had been a terrorist outrage in Sweden, and there hadn't. Here's the bottom line. We've got to keep our country safe. You look at what's happening in Germany. You look at what's happening last night in Sweden. Sweden. Who would believe this? Sweden. They took in large numbers. They're having problems like they never thought possible. But a few days later, there was something. It was a rot in Sweden. And so uh, somehow the two merged together. The facts became immaterial. There was trouble in Sweden, and Trump had said there was trouble in Sweden. It's a minor example. But there are actually hundreds from his uh, rule. Uh, so many, it's difficult to know where to begin. Where, I mean... An obvious example is Trump's use of history, claiming that General Pershing had said that had put down a Muslim uprising in the Philippines by sort of wrapping the delinquents in a pig skin and shooting them and so forth. This wasn't true. It was a total invention, not of Trump. He'd got it from somewhere else. But it's a very good example of how he so often utters a falsehood which has a certain grain of plausibility. That's how he gets away with it. But do you think we are so gullible now as maybe people in an earlier age who perhaps weren't so literate about these techniques would have been? The issue is that we have reached a certain point in history where there is a disequilibrium between the power and range and ubiquity of these techniques and technologies and our ability to critique them. Now, it was the same story in the 1930s when the propaganda analysis movement started in the US because they were trying to fight corporate propaganda. Uh, domestic demagogues like the uh, fierce radio priest, Father Charles Coughlin, 
and of course Nazism, and the blandishments of the Third Reich, which was aiming for the American market. And so they created their famous toolkit of propaganda analysis. They gave about 10 points to detect propaganda, like glittering generalization, and they developed all, all kinds of other things as well. The trouble is they shut up shop, uh, and they focused on university campuses and schools. They shut up shop when the war began, and they were pulled into the American so-called information effort. We have, I think, in the end to start with schools. We have to have it as part of an education, which would be enriching, too, uh, for pupils to be able to critique to be able to detect logical fallacies, to be able to detect lack of information support, to be able to detect the power of rhetoric and metaphor, to beguile and deceive them. So I think you could do some fantastic school lessons where you talk films, you talk speeches and so forth, and you talk assertions on social media and showed just why these were wrong and uh, could be proven to be wrong. Uh, at an earlier point in my career, I did in fact show Al-Qaeda videos to my classes, which of course today would have been strictly illegal. But it was a very, very good discipline because students could immediately see how manipulative they were. For example, on the question of the New Orleans basically sinking the floods, Al-Qaeda had one of their spokesmen disguised as a kind of news presenter going on about how God had punished the city of the homosexuals. Now, that was uh, very effective with the students because they instantly saw what a bloody awful movement it was you know, the mask really did drop when you actually sh showed them the stuff rather than they just hear about it secondhand. So I think there are all kinds of ways you can use to prime people. And we're going to have to do it. I mean, clearly we have the fact-checking sites like Snopes. There's a lot of attention in the media of Cambridge Analytica and the interventions in 2016 and so forth, the Russian interventions, etc. People are very, very aware of it. And by uh, giving something a label like fake news, you make them aware of it. But the word propaganda really did uh, disappear from public discourse. And if you ha don't have a word for something, you no longer see it. This is the problem. And I think in the end, it's not going to be through the media we do this, but actually at school, in a non-partisan way, it would be neither right nor left. It would simply be giving, as they did in the 30s, actually giving pupils the toolkits. Because at the moment, as I say, there is this, this disequilibrium between the forces of uh, the supercharged forces of persuasion and our ability to resist them. What are the kind of tools that increase discernment to be able to differentiate between the truth and fake yeah, news? Yeah. I think we just are taught to look for the slate of hand, how they use evidence, the way they use assertion, the way they actually use generalizations, the way they use polemic, the way they use insult. In other words, the essential thing to grasp is the way emotion is deployed. And at the back of all of this, essentially, would be the old juxtaposition of emotion and reason. Uh, we're looking really at the power of emotional persuasion. But in order not to be overcome by it, we look at how emotional persuasion works and how it does not use reason-giving approaches. 
Would you say, in a sense, that all of our perceptions of history or even current affairs is a kind of fiction? It is a kind of fiction. A man recently said to me, oh, Churchill killed more people than Hitler. Well, that's a very good example of a fiction which is actually doing the rounds. Uh, that's uh, the general public, if you like, but even uh, the highly educated world is actually quite desensitized to the amount of fiction there actually is. If you take Jim Callaghan, when prime minister, he's a very distinguished man, been naval officer in World War II, a distinguished career in the Labour Party. He actually repeated the Tony Pandy massacre fiction. When he was prime minister, the Churchill had ordered the troops into Tony Pandy, and they'd carried out a massacre. It never actually happened. There was another disturbance several years later in South Wales involving troops, but at Tony Pandy, uh, only the police had been involved and only one person was killed. Uh, the miners had taken the miners' owners' families hostage. Uh, he did send in troops, but they're stationed a few miles outside Tony Pandy. They never fired a shot. But even someone as sophisticated as Callaghan, who should have known better, probably did believe that at a certain level that massacre had actually happened, but it hadn't. And a, a lot of our history really is like that. For example, there's been a lot of interesting work really recently on the anniversary of the Boston Massacre, which was 1770. Going into it, going into why the soldiers fired, how the officer lost control, what the crowd was doing, how the soldiers had been put on trial and branded, and all of the process, it emerges as much more complex than the mere idea of massacre. But public history doesn't do complexity. Finally, we've established then that Hitler was this master of manipulating his own image in order to create this fiction that appealed to the emotions and the sentiments of the time. Do you think there are any representations of Hitler which come close to the real Hitler? The only one is actually a secret service operation when Hitler was meeting Marshal Mannerheim, or the Finnish leader, on a railway carriage in Finland and he was bugged until finally his SS people realized they were being bugged. But the Finns had that recording. They wanted to know and it's the only recording that exists of Hitler speaking in a normal voice. Very, very different, you see, from the public Hitler. And indeed, the home movies taken by Speer at the Berghof, showing Hitler relaxing, they give to some extent another side of him eating cake with his girlfriend and so forth. But the role came to define the man so much that uh, in the end there was no point where he was not acting. It was a very clever thing to do because it actually detached him from the party who were loathed and despised as very, very corrupt. Uh, there was this idea that Hitler was uh, really not very human at all, that all the horrid things happened, happened kind of in some other way, that he was not implicated, that Hitler could even be a kind of anti-Nazi. People had their Hitler spots 
in little corners of their house, even people who'd never been religious. He was turned uh, really into a cult leader who was believed even when the party were hated. He managed to keep his image pristine, even though that of the party rapidly became contaminated. And this is why Germans fought to the end, and significantly the last people to lose faith in him, actually they never did, were the German army. They are faithful to the end. This is why uh, the regime lost it in the terrible way it did. If you take the execution of Pastor Bonhoeffer, along with Major General Hans Oster and Admiral Wilhelm Canaris, they could hear the American guns booming away. The judge who presided over the trial had to get to it by goods wagon and cycle the last 10 miles. The question is, why did the regime continue intact until the bitter end? It really is a quite remarkable and remarkably depressing story. A lot of that has to do with the power of the Hitler image. As one very famous diarist and writer of the book, The Language of the Third Reich, Victor Klemperer, points out there were people who are saying that, oh, the German army had only made a tactical retreat, even though the Allies are in Germany, people are saying, oh, he will do something. He always does. He always delivers. So Klemperer's Jewish, of course, has these conversations with people after the bombing of Dresden and so on and so forth, when everything is fluid, the Allied armies are getting nearer and nearer, people still believe in him. There are, of course, other stories, like the person in 1943 who saluted 60 people in the street with the Nazi greeting his party member, and found that only about three of them responded. So the actual data, if you can call it that, is a bit mixed. What is certainly true is the loyalty of the army, which is the only loyalty that really mattered, and that loyalty was given to the very end. Nicholas O'Shaughnessy, thank you very much for speaking to us. Mm -hmm. Historical fiction. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.